This is Generation Justice, broadcasting from the University of New Mexico, 89.9 KUNM and KUNM.org. I'm your host, Danny Kastner. And I'm your other host, Chantal Trujillo. Generation Justice is a multimedia project that trains youth to create media that inspires social change. Tonight's show will be featuring Steven Salida. He is a well-respected educator and author who lost his position at the University of Illinois due to his tweets regarding Israel's recent massacre of Palestinians in Gaza. If my situation has taught us anything, it's that the moment that the state and its operatives try to screw us over, that they're going to face an extraordinary backlash and the individual who is affected is going to have a tremendous, uh, incalculable amount of community support. We will also hear about his upcoming book you know that discusses the relation between Palestine and Native America. But over the past four or five years, comparison of Natives and Palestinians has reached a level of both sophistication and complexity I never could have imagined in 2006. Before we continue, here's our music director, Dazare, introducing the first song for tonight's show. Our first song tonight is about realizing your potential. Too many times we can be our own obstacle when it comes to realizing all of the amazing feats we are capable of. This song is called All This Could Be Yours by Cold War Kids. Stephen Salida visited the University of New Mexico to present a talk called Internationalism, From the New World to the Holy Land, Encountering Palestine in American Indian Studies. This talk discusses the comparison between the native population in the U.S. and the native population in Palestine. I had the opportunity to attend Stephen Salida's discussion to hear what he had to say. Here is Professor Alex Lubin who is the chair of the American Studies Department at UNM to introduce Stephen Salida. Many of you know the troubling story that has become known internationally as the Stephen Salida case. At the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, Dr. Salida's firing from a tenured position in the American Indian Studies program just weeks before the beginning of the semester has touched a nerve with people interested in how the question of Palestine is addressed or not, as the case may be in the US, and also with those interested in questions of academic freedom and new administrative rhetoric about civility. Brooklyn College political scientist Corey Robin has argued that the Salida case reveals the, quote, Palestinian exception to the First Amendment, as speech critical of Israeli violence in Gaza was deemed uncivil. And Illinois argued that Steve Salida couldn't appropriately teach all students, despite the fact that he has built a distinguished record as the author of six books and a respected teacher at Virginia Tech University. The case also raises questions about the role of donors in influencing university policy on hiring matters. Yet Dr. Salida's case is not merely about the ways that civility masks dominant power or about the violation of academic freedom, although it is surely about both of those things. Often lost in the coverage of Dr. Salida's case is the topic of his scholarship which compares native and indigenous sovereignty in the Americas 
with similar questions of indigeneity in Palestine, not in over-celebratory comparisons, but through deep consideration of the possibilities and limits of indigeneity as a category of analysis. It wasn't only that Dr. Salaita's tweets were viewed as beyond the pale to a few influential donors at Illinois. It's also that his hire as a Palestinian American in American Indian studies, as well as his work on the questions of Palestinian decolonization, touched two proverbial third rails in American public discourse. On the one hand, he forced a reconsideration of the question of Palestine as a question that revolves around decolonization and his hire implicitly called for a consideration of US colonialism over native indigenous peoples as an ongoing project that should be considered within the moral and political horizon of Palestinian solidarity. Yet a public too often committed to viewing Palestinians as Goliaths and not the Israelis as Goliaths, or too often committed to viewing native and indigenous peoples as what native scholar Jody Byrd terms the ontological prior of modern society these two groups could not fathom Dr. Salaita's hiring in American Indian studies, nor his criticism of Israeli violence during its recent offensive in Gaza. So please help me welcome Dr. Stephen Salaita. Can everybody hear me okay in the back? I don't want to yell too much. Um, I don't want to get myself in trouble. So, But I'm going to project my voice. I don't... don't Please don't go around tweeting, you know. Uh, Slide is yelling at us. I, I am in, in, in only the most technical sense of, of the term. Um, it's a tremendous honor to be here, and I want to thank uh, you know, Professor Lubin in particular you know, for helping organize this and his intellectual solidarity and, and for his friendship and, uh, and all the other folks um, here at UNM who have, who have helped make this happen. Um, let me start with a few words about the, the genesis of, of this talk. Um, it actually serves as an early introduction of, of my next book, which, um, which will analyze the many ways in which Palestine plays a role in American Indian studies. Its presence in the field is both fruitful and controversial, and whatever one makes of it, um, undeniably visible. I focus on American Indian studies rather than the broader indigenous studies, not as an overt political decision, but because my project is mainly limited to North American nations. When I examine other areas of the world, you know, Hawaii, the, the Caribbean, Algeria, South Africa, etc., I, I, I try to offer the appropriate nomenclature. With the term internationalism, I emphasize communalism and dialogue across borders, both natural and geopolitical, not the nationalism of the nation state, but of the nation itself as composed of heterogeneous communities functioning as self-identified collectives attached to particular land bases. Internationalism is a way to compare nationalisms, to put them into conversation, but also to examine how the invention and evolution of national identities necessarily rely on international dialectics. An interesting conversation that has developed recently in American Indian Studies is the role of Palestine in the field. And this conversation forms the nucleus of this presentation. I'm not merely interested in elucidating the processes by which Palestine has become a topic of interest in American Indian studies, although I will do that, but also in exploring the implications of incorporating Palestine into the discipline and the comparative possibilities that exist when it happens. 
So I've dealt with the topic before. Um, my first book, uh, The Holy Land in Transit, was published in 2006, but I compiled the majority of the research for it in the early 2000s. In the book, I look at some of the ways uh, colonial discourses in North America and Palestine arise from the same moral and philosophical narratives of settlement, examining how modern Palestinian and native literatures incorporate those discourses. So back then, there was good source material some of which I had to mine from old documents. But the comparison of Palestine and Native America was pretty undeveloped. Ward Churchill had done some comparative analysis, as had Norman Finkelstein. Neither was especially strong. Robert Warrior had long before published his classic essay, Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians. And the American Indian movement had released numerous statements in support of Palestinian nationhood. So I wasn't bereft of materials, but over the past four or five years, comparison of natives and Palestinians has reached a level of both sophistication and complexity I never could have imagined in 2006. Before I sort out what's happening in these comparisons, let, let me take a look at some of the reasons comparison of natives and Palestinians has increased in recent years. I believe that there are three primary factors, each with its own set of contradictions and subtexts. So number one, the proliferation of blogs and social media where people are able to argue, inform, share, and theorize, however superficially. These platforms lend themselves to all sorts of comparison, usually for the sake of rhetorical persuasion. For instance, one of my Facebook friends is compiling the many instances that people say, Palestine is worse than this or that moment of black oppression. South African apartheid, for instance, or Los Angeles during the early 90s. The same thing happens with Palestinians and natives, in that a fair number of Palestine supporters draw parallels, some excellent and others cringe-inducing, to North American indigenes. Number two, Palestine scholars and activists have, and I say Palestine scholars and activists, not necessarily Palestinian scholars and activists, so this would include, um, you know, would include a, a good number of Native American studies scholars. Well, they've increasingly been using the language of indigeneity and geocultural relationships to describe the political, economic, and legal position of Palestinians. The appropriation of such language is a rhetorical act meant to situate rightly, in my opinion, Palestine in a specific framework of colonial history rather than as an exceptional set of events brought forth by ahistorical circumstances. The use of such language identifies a perceived socio-historical familiarity with other dispossessed communities, in this case, North American indigenes. The declaration that Palestinians aren't merely native or original, but indigenous to the land colonized by Israel not a completely new phenomenon, but one certainly growing in frequency, alters a number of crucial factors of Palestinian strategies of decolonization. In particular, the relationship of human rights organizations with international law, the comparative possibilities in fields such as ethnic and indigenous studies, and both intellectual and physical deployment of Palestinian nationalism into transnational spaces. Number three. The most important reason for this proliferation is the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, or BDS for short. Boycott of Israeli institutions or of the state itself has a long, albeit uneven, history in the Arab world. When I discuss BDS, I have in mind a specific call for cultural and academic boycott 
issued by nearly 200 organizations representing Palestinian civil society. Thus, BDS is not a governmental or corporate initiative, but neither is it spontaneous or organic, for it arises from a long history of decolonial advocacy on an international scale. I can say that BDS is an initiative of Palestinian civil society and has seen rapid growth within the past five years. What does BDS have to do with American Indian studies? Lots, actually. The short version is that many Native scholars and activists have taken up the cause of BDS and in so doing have broadened the conditions of studying the decolonization of North America and deepened what it means to undertake the types of intellectual and political activities one might perform in the service of Palestinian liberation. Other reasons for the increase in comparison of natives and Palestinians include the ascension of Palestine as a test case of one's decolonial slash leftist slash scholarly credibility, the success of the Palestinian national movement in convincing greater numbers of people around the world to support or even identify with its cause, and this is aided by increased Israeli belligerence and its dissemination in alternative media, the growth of Arab-American studies, a field in which Palestine is central, in the academic spaces of ethnic studies where it's encountered American Indian and indigenous studies, and the increased emphasis in American Indian and indigenous studies on international and comparative methodologies, which has led numerous scholars from the Pacific, North America, and South America to Palestine. Thank you, Stephen Salida, for taking the time to come to UNM and for spreading awareness about Palestine. I believe that it's not only important, but also essential to draw these comparisons between the history of settlement, occupation, and oppression in the United States to that which is occurring in Palestine. It is vital that we never limit ourselves to one perspective, but open our minds to different ideas and ways of thinking. Before we hear more from Stephen Salida, here is Dazare again with some more hyphy tunes. Our next song talks about unnecessarily conforming. More than likely, you will make a fool out of yourself when you retract your words at the critique of others. When academic institutions compromise speech liberties for the sake of funding, we must ask ourselves, who are you trying to fool? This song is called Brain by Banks. During the question and answer portion of Stephen Salida's talk, David Correa, who is an associate professor in the American Studies Department at UNM, asked a question regarding the struggle of being both a scholar and an activist, as well as about the power structure within academia. Here is Stephen Salida's response to those questions. I, I, I think there are different ways that we can be engaged in, in, in academia. I mean... I've been working for a little while now with, uh, you know, with U.S. Acme and with, with BDS, and I was, uh, I was pretty vocal, um, you know, around the time of the ASA resolution, you know, before it saying that, that this should happen and then afterwards justifying why it was a good thing that, that it happened. And, um, you know, I, I think that that had uh, 
that gave me a type of, 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 of visibility that, put bluntly, isn't necessary to do good work in, in, in academe, right? Uh, it's a type of commitment to a certain form of public activism that I was comfortable with and that I wanted to do, but uh, one needn't necessarily make herself or, or himself uh, especially public right, to uh, practice uh, a strong academic ethics, right? It exists in the way that, you know, you mentor your graduate students, right? Uh, in the way that you nurture your undergraduate students, the way that you treat your colleagues, right? The way that you, uh, the way that you, you try to live professionally a, a certain type of ethics that's gonna help create community in these professional spaces where we labor. Now, if you wanna talk about uh, broader issues of the, you know, the scholar as sort of a public activist in some way, then um, I appreciate that, uh, appreciate as in understand, recognize that, uh, you know, sort of what happened to me in the University of Illinois, um, you know, it's been really public. And I think one of the reasons that it's been really public is that just the egregiousness of the U of I's decision, the timing of it, just the sheer stupidity of its rationale, right? Uh, but I don't think that there's anything particularly I exceptional about it. See, these are questions that you raise, uh, the really good questions about, you know, uh, sort of power coming down on us. Uh, you know, African-American scholars have been dealing with that since the moment that they set foot in, in academe. Indigenous scholars and students have been dealing with that since the, the moment they set foot in academe. In fact, the conventions of academic self-governance in lots of ways um, have always been hostile to deviant bodies and deviant minds, right? Uh, whether that deviance is based on culture or skin color or political commitment or, or whatever the case may be, it's always been a hostile environment, right? Um, it's always been an environment that's rewarded uh, affinities for state power, right? Uh, and you can think about the ways that even terms like free speech and, and academic freedom function. Um, you know, yeah, this last January when that uh, Arctic whatever the hell came down and made half the country, I don't know if it made New Mexico miserable, but uh, <laughs> it certainly made uh, everybody else miserable. Was it called the Arctic vortex? The polar vortex, right? You know, it was like, you know, below, below whatever, you know, definitely below zero in, uh, in Champaign-Urbana and Phyllis Wise, and she's of Asian background, Chinese background specifically, she decided to hold classes and the students got pissed off. I don't know if you, you heard the story, but they unleashed a torrent of racist and sexist invective towards her and she dutifully the next day or the day after, sometime shortly thereafter, released a statement saying we affirm the speech rights of, of our students and that's that. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with, with that decision. That, you know, she, as the subject of the racism and sexism, you know, I confer to her the right to respond any way that, that she wants to respond, all right? Uh, that was her deal. But you think about the way that it's so easy to affirm the right of the KKK to march in Skokie, all right? And Fred Phelps and, and the Westboro Baptist Church to, to protest this and that. In fact, affirming their rights to do these things, right, is a fundamental aspect of the American mythology, right? Uh, right? The American liberal myth, right? Of open-mindedness, et cetera. But the moment that you quit engaging in these uh, token shows of open-mindedness, right, towards those uh, liberal multicultural mythologies and start challenging the nitty-gritty of state power, it changes, right? It changes. And academic freedom and free speech aren't so accommodating. That's always been a reality. That continues to be a reality. So in terms of 
you know, how graduate students and young scholars, or hell, I was tenured, or even, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, experienced scholars can, uh, you know, can deal with those possibilities. Uh, I always say that, uh, that, that engagement uh, it happens on an interpersonal level and it happens in a public way and it needn't be both. So it's up to individuals. But uh, I, I do believe that we change things when we behave ethically in our professional lives, as tacky as that sounds. And I do believe that, uh, that if my situation has taught us anything, uh, it's not that the state and its uh, operatives can screw us over. It's that the moment that the state uh, and its operatives try to screw us over, that they're going to face an extraordinary backlash, and the individual who is affected is going to have a tremendous, uh, incalculable amount of community support, right? And that we, we go through it together, and that we're in it together as a community, and we practice a certain form of decolonization based on this model of standing together and being together. Um, well, it's, in terms of what's at stake for AIS um, scholars, um, I'll give a short answer since I already went on about seven tangents. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine for them taking on anything, be it Palestine or, you know, uh, uh, you know Burma or anything else, right, that would not put them Right, as indigenous uh, human beings, right, and as indigenous scholars, right, in in any more of uh, antagonistic position with uh, with the state, you know, I think it's it's kind of a been there, done that, uh, learning how to deal with it sort of thing for for American Indian studies, and I don't think that it should be overlooked that what happened to me at U of I happened in an American Indian studies program, um, one that already had. Uh, something of a, I don't even know the right word, uh, but uh, uh, the administration didn't love that program so much, even though it, it was one of the best in the world, right? And it's filled with uh, incredible human beings, incredible human beings and, and fantastic scholars, right? It's just one of the best collections of folks that, that, that you could ever come across, but they've also been engaged in anti-chief activism, right? And, and I don't know what the hell it is about Illinois, really, but those... The folks, a lot of the folks in Illinois are more attached to the chief than, than even the Redskins fans are attached to that hideous logo of theirs. I mean, it's, it's totemic and it's profound and it's angry and, and it's everywhere. And that department constantly brings up these inconveniences to the university, to the community, um, you know, to, to the state. And not only the inconveniences of Chief Illini Iwek, but the inconveniences of you know, the land-grant university um, existing on indigenous territory, the inconvenience of the depopulation of the, the native communities of what's now Illinois, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think in my case, uh, it's, it's not just um, American Indian studies taking on Palestine and getting further dinged. I think it's a case of American Indian studies getting dinged simultaneous to Palestine in ways where you, you can't, at least in this situation, separate the two. Thank you again, Stephen Salida, for sharing your ideas with us. Being an activist, a woman of color, and potentially wanting to pursue a career in academia, I found this especially troubling. How are we to protect our rights within the education system when they're not even protected? 
More broadly, how can we stand by when the First Amendment is used to justify the existence of extremist groups such as the KKK and the Westboro Baptist Church, but when an educated professor speaks about crimes against humanity, he is punished? If you want to hear Stephen Salida's entire talk, visit generationjustice.org. Now, back to Dazare with some more music. Before we listen to this next song, we must never forget our individual power when we openly stand up for what we believe in. It is important to always speak passion into our words if we wish to continue the wave of change. This song is called Long Live Palestine by Low Key. Yeah. This is for Palestine, the Mala, West Bank, Gaza. This is for the child that is searching for the answer. We're the shocker taking tears in the place from the laughter. We only live Palestine, we only live Gaza. Palestine, the Mala, West Bank, Gaza. This is for the child that is searching for the answer. We're the shocker taking tears in the place from the laughter. We only live Palestine. While we listen to tunes made by ignorant fools, Israel blocked the UN from delivering food. They bring in the troops and you won't even glimpse at the We're now going to share with you some super amazing events that are happening right here in our community. Here's our cool calendar crew, Maya Quinones and Carson Lafferty. Guess what time it is, everyone? Are we like on the same wavelength or something, Carson? Because I was just about to say the exact same thing. We sure are, Maya, because it's it's time time for for the the wonderful wonderful weekly weekly edition of of Community Calendar. Calendar. I'm your host, Carson Lafferty. And I'm your co-host, Maya Quinones. We have an awesome lineup of community events that I'm sure everyone can enjoy. Even me, Maya? Because I can be a tough crowd kind of guy, you know? Why, yes, of course, Carson, because I also know you're a sincere, strong-hearted man who cares about his community. Why, thank you, Maya. You're welcome, Carson. For this first event, we have the Wonder of Learning exhibit at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing about the exhibit because we covered it in an earlier show. You're absolutely right, Carson. The Wonder of Learning exhibit has been traveling worldwide and showcasing the Reggio Emilia education model. It focuses on how important early education and development is and how it sets the foundation for children and their ability to learn. Wow, Maya. You just blew my mind up like a hot air balloon. How much time do we have until the exhibit leaves New Mexico? It will be on display at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science until November 30th. The museum is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This is the last week, everyone, so keep that in mind. And if you'd like to listen to our show or watch our video we produced on the Wonder of Learning exhibit, you can go to our website at generationjustice.org. Right on. Hey, Carson. Hay's for horses, Maya. I'm not talking about that hay. I mean, H-E-Y is in, hey, have you heard about the indigenous fine arts market that's coming up? No, I have not. Please elaborate. I'd be glad to. Next weekend, the Indigenous Fine Arts Market, or IFAM, will be presenting a showcase on chic and modern native art. That's prodigious. This will be a, be a holiday showcase by the IFAM that is an invitational art show. It will be featuring artists who were a part of the successful IFAM summer show in last August. The event will comprise of six curated galleries with over 50 stupendous artist creations, including jewelry, painting, sculpture, and other forms of amazing indigenous art. Such artists will include Naval jewelers Daryl Dean and Rebecca Begay, Chickasaw jeweler Christine Dorsey, and much, much more. Carson, you've got to tell me when it's happening. I hope it's soon. It will be going down on November 29th and 30th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., at the beautiful hotel on the loose located in downtown Albuquerque. For more information, you can visit their website at indigofam.org. That's I N 
D I G E F A M dot org. Sounds great. You know what else sounds great, Maya? What's that, Carson? The ABQ Women at the World Poetry Slam Championship. That's what. Wow. Exactly. Hey, Maya. Hey, it's for horses, Carson. You got me there. This Poetry Slam, we're featuring some of the best women slammers here in Bootke. That's right, listeners. And the winner of the championship will be representing the 505 at the upcoming International Women of the World Poetry Slam. This poetry standoff is an all-women competition. So that means all of us guys have to sit out. Don't let that give you sad blue eyes, Carson, because the slam invites everyone to attend, including you and myself. All right. I can watch from the sidelines and see how fierce, determined, and intelligent these women are with the power of words. I wonder about you sometimes, Carson. No need to wonder anymore, because I have another great community event in store. The Gentlemen's Society of UNM will be holding their weekly meeting next Friday on November 28th from 2 to 3 p.m. The group will be discussing topics that concern and affect gay, bi, queer, and transgender men. For additional information, or questions, you can contact the UNM LGBTQ Resource Center at 505-277-5428. Speaking of gentlemen... Carson, we don't have time for this. Well, fine then, Maya. I thought we were on the same thought plane. What happened? It's time to go. You're absolutely right. This has been your super-duper five-session a weekly calendar with your host, Carson Lafferty. And Maya Quinones. And as always, keep it casual, Albuquerque. Now back to our music host, Dazare Bradford. If we stop questioning what's happening around us for fear of stirring the pot, whatever, whoever was at the bottom, we'll end up getting burnt. This next song questions who exactly benefits when we change ourselves. The song is called Change by Churchill. To make you want me, I can fabricate the truth. I'll give you We have reached the end of our show tonight. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this evening. We would like to thank Stephen Salida for traveling to UNM to share his knowledge with us. Huge thanks to the American Studies Department, the Institute for American Indian Research, the Out Queer Grads, Chicano Chicana Studies, and the American Studies Graduate Student Association for sponsoring his talk. We would also like to thank our music director for tonight's show, Dazare Bradford. Special thanks to our calendar hosts, Carson Lafferty and Maya Quinones. Shout out to Zach Milliken for engineering. Thank you to my wonderful co-host, Chantel, for editing and producing tonight's show. Our amazing production assistants came from George Luna Pena, Melissa Harris, Kamaria Umi, and Roberta Rael. Much appreciation to all of our youth media makers here at Generation Justice. We couldn't do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past shows, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch our videos, and much, much more. Our podcasts are also available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. 
I'm your host, Chantal Trujillo. And I'm your other host, Danny Kessner. Up next on KUNM is Spoken Word. See you next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Shalom. Salam. If you didn't catch my drift the first time, the second time, or the third time, stay true to yourself. When we trust in our voice as a medium for a change, progress will soon follow. When you speak through your heart, obstacles will always arise to try and silence you, but you must carry on with your fight. Thank you, Stephen Salida, for continuing the fight. Your persistence and your determination is incredibly inspirational. The closing songs tonight are You Gotta Be by Desiree, Shake It Out by Florence and the Machine, Pushing Against the Stone by Valerie June, and Let It Be by Carol Woods and Timothy C. Mitchum. I'm your music host, Desiree. Stay cozy. It's getting cold tonight.